0: Yes, I know, gas prices are through the roof, Biden is pooping in his pants, the rest of the world is laughing at us for this incompetent that we have as a supposed leader, and everyone knows he's not. The only people that refuse to seem to admit that he's not is the left-wing radicals and the news media which supports them, and it seems like there's just no end in sight. And lo and behold, in the midst of all this, the Supreme Court of the United States has just concluded one of its most sweeping terms ever, handing down five monumental decisions which fly in the face of every single thing the left has been trying to force down the American people's throat for probably the past 40 or 50 years. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you have not already done so, Please subscribe to the show. And you can do so in one of three easy ways. You can go to either the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store and download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service, and simply search for the Jamie Dury Show. And then you can subscribe that way, leave comments, leave reviews, or if you are content and as I am, with using your native podcast aggregator app, simply listen directly through the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. Just search out the Jamie Dury Show. We're in both places, and you can subscribe. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you can leave reviews, you can leave comments, you can always email me directly at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com with an inquiry, with a topic you'd like me to cover, a question, feel free to do so, and we encourage you to do so. The more reviews we get, the more interaction we get from you, the faster the show will grow, so please share it with your friends. So... What exactly are these five cases which have the American left apoplectic? There was, I was putting it together uh, one by one, looking at the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, the big New York gun case, the state attorney general Bruin, the solicitor for the state of New York against um, the um, New York State Rifle Club, uh, and some other things about the EPA and their inability to regulate greenhouse gases. And lo and behold, there was a great article here in the Epic Times which sort of put it all together. So I'm not going to read the article in its entirety, but I'm going to use it as a resource and pull quote from it so we get some uh, sort of uh, cohesiveness in the argument it remarked that, su- that the Supreme Court has just finished what will likely go down as one of the most momentous and memorable terms in history. In addition to the court deciding many blockbuster cases from abortion to the limits of power of the federal bureaucracy, Justice Stephen Breyer retired, and now Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in to replace him. There was an unprecedented leak of the draft opinion of the Roe v. Wade overturning Protesters showed up at justices' homes in several attempts to intimidate them, and an armed man made a serious threat to one of the justices' lives, based in part on that leaked draft opinion. Major victories occurred in this term for liberty and the Second Amendment, but there were also other decisions, important ones, about the powers possessed by administrative agencies. Now, why is that significant? Well, I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen. Because for a large portion of our modern history, particularly in the 20th century, and the latter half especially so, Congress has deferred governance of this country. They have abdicated their authority to agencies that we, they created. And these agencies, arbitrarily, without the input of the will of the people, without legislation being passed by elected representatives, pass regulations. And these regulations operate with the force of law. Yet no duly elected person voted on these laws. No congressman, no congresswoman, no senator, no president signing an executive order. Nothing. Nameless, faceless men, which haunt the halls of these bureaucracies. And this is by design so that they're difficult to challenge. You can't go and complain because they don't care. They don't care because they're not beholden to you. They're not running for re-election. They don't care. And this is why you had people that are aghast. They buy land in some nice rural part of the United States, a wilderness, and they want to build a home or they want to do something with the property. And suddenly they find that it's been declared a haven for the spotted owl by some federal bureaucracy, and you're prevented from doing what you want with your own land. And the question is, how far do these agencies go? How far should they be allowed to go in the exercise of their authority? Well, the Supreme Court issued some decisions, and we're going to go over all of them. The big one, the one that's on everybody's mind, was the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Dobbs versus Jackson, Women's Health Organization. It was a challenge to Mississippi's 2018 Gestational Age Act, which prohibits abortions after 15 weeks of gestation, except in cases of medical emergency or severe abnormality. Now, just to show you how far we've gone from the spirit of Roe Wade, which I think was wrongfully decided, but assuming it wasn't for the sake of argument, the fact that there was some acknowledgement that, you know, there are different parts of the pregnancy. Nobody talked about primesters, or trimesters prior to Roe v. Wade. And I guess one could make an argument that in the first trimester, the life is not viable. So maybe the woman has more of a right to make a decision. In the second trimester, it's a little grayer because that life may be viable at a certain point. And in the third trimester, it's not gray at all. You shouldn't be able to do anything about it. If you haven't made a decision by then, too bad. You can't justify murder. See, murder's always been against the law. And if something is viable outside the womb, then it is not nascent human life. It is human life. And exterminating that life is murder. But a lot of people have used the excuse that the life of the mother is in danger. And I suggest to you that in many cases, this has been used as a retroactive way to get around the uh, time limits that um, are now working against people who want to have an abortion past the time where it is legally permissible. And this sort of manipulation of reasoning and and language has led us to the point where we have partial birth abortions taking place in this country, where children, just a day before they would have been naturally born, have their bodies removed from the mother's womb except for their head, and then a surgeon, and I don't know how anyone can call himself a surgeon who would do this, inserts a pair of surgical shears into the basement, of the baby's skull, severs the brainstem, sucks out the brain, and kills it. That's about as brutal an act as you can imagine. And these same people who want this act to continue are the people that go crazy when a child molesting murderer, sick son of a bitch, is about to be executed and they say it's not civilized, but it's civilized to cut the brain and suck the brain out of an innocent unborn child who's done nothing. But, it's not, uh, but it, it's, it's not okay to bring determination in the life of a convicted murderer. There's got to be a contradiction here that people aren't getting. Now, in the case of the Mississippi Challenge, the federal district court and the Fifth Circuit, which oversees that district court, sided with the provider of the abortion, ruling that the law violated the Supreme Court's framework established in Roe v. Wade and reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But in a 6-3 ruling, the court overruled both Roe and Casey and overruled the Federal District Court and the Fifth Circuit in the case at Barr and upheld the Mississippi law. A 6-3 majority opinion, authored by Justice Sam Alito, held that because the right to abortion is neither found in the text of the Constitution, nor deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, the Constitution does not provide for such a right. Now, I think that's correct. Apart from whether a woman morally should have a right to an abortion, am I even talking about that. That's a whole nother moral question. It's not a legal question that the court should be dealing with. It's a moral question whether an unborn child ought to stand to be born or not at the sole discretion of the mother. That's a moral question. All Alito did and the other five justices that joined his opinion was to state the obvious that the right to abortion does not exist in the United States Constitution. Therefore, what has changed is that no state can be prevented from making a law, regulating it, or opposing it, whereas before, all states had to allow it. So all this has done is do what the Founding Fathers always envisioned. The primary governance of the United States of America will take place at the state and local level, whenever possible. As the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution enumerates, all powers not specifically delegated to the federal government by this Constitution will automatically revert to the states or to the people. The right to an abortion is not specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Accordingly, It reverts to the states and to the people. And I can assure the women of America that there will be more than enough states in this country that will readily grant you access to abortion. Now, for some of you living in states that don't allow it or want to restrict it, you may have to travel to get one. But I don't think an abortion is something that you should be having to have so frequently that the travel you may have to incur to get one is going to be that much of an impediment. And this falsified notion on the part of the left that this is going to disproportionately impact women of color or minority extraction is ridiculous. Some of the most liberal states in this country have the highest populations of people of color, and they're certainly going to allow abortion. California has 10% of the country's population population. Abortion on demand over there, abortion on demand in New York, abortion on demand in Miss, in uh, Massachusetts, abortion on demand in Illinois, in New Jersey, probably Michigan, but even if not Michigan, the states I just mentioned, and a host of other liberal states, Vermont, Maine, Rhode Island. You start adding up all these liberal states that are going to allow abortion, Colorado, and you'll see that there's plenty of places to have abortion, and it probably constitutes the majority of the population of this country. So, so much for that. The court, in finding this ruling, found that a proper application of stare decisis, which is Latin for let the decision stand or the thing is decided, counseled in favor of overturning. Roe and Casey. First, as to the nature of the error, Roe was not just wrong from a legal perspective, it was egregiously wrong for reasons that I've mentioned on this show before. Roe was decided by Harry Blackman, who decided he wanted people to have a right to have an abortion. So he retroactively went back and invented a law or invented a right that did not exist and tried to say that, yes, the right to abortion is enshrined in the federal constitution because it's part and parcel of the right to privacy. When there was no other document, writing, or anything I'm aware of that had previously, prior to that time, made such a connection or such an assertion. So that's why they said it was not wrong, but egregiously wrong. So we have that working. The next big case, which actually was released decision was released before the decision overturning roe was the gun case in new york new york state rifle and pistol association versus bruin another challenge to new York's strict standards for issuing a license to carry a concealed firearm the state issued concealed carry licenses only to applicants who could show proper cause for needing one which did not include a generalized need for self-protection in other words if you went there and said look You know something? I've worked hard all my life. I've never run afoul of the law. You know, I used to keep in good shape, but I'm getting a little old now. You know, I'm hitting my 60s, pushing 70. I can't rock and roll and fight with these young youngsters like I I used to when I was younger. I get cold cocked or I get uh, challenged by more than one of them. What am I supposed to do? Try and duke it out with them or just submit and consent to be robbed and beaten, maybe murdered? and have them released with the bail reform law and no punishment, meted out. I think I'd like to protect myself. I'd like, a, like to exercise my Second Amendment right to carry a gun. state of New York would, as a matter of course, tell you, sorry. The fact that you want one and may have a right to carry one isn't good enough. We don't think you do have a right to carry one. If you can't show us why you have an extraordinary need, you're not going to get it. Now, the overwhelming majority of carry permits in the city of New York are a disproportionate amount were given to people who were members of the Hasidim. And there are many reasons for this. Some people say it was to repay political favors on the part of Rudy Giuliani because they supported him, and that may be part of it. The other part is that a great number of Hasidim are engaged in the diamond business. And so it is not uncommon when engaged in that profession to carry exorbitant quantities of gems worth hundreds of thousands of dollars on your person, making you a... Disproportionately likely target for robbery. And so the state would routinely accept that as proper cause for needing a carry permit. But two adult law abiding citizens I just mentioned, who are residents of New York, sued the state of New York after being denied licenses for not meeting this arbitrary and capricious standard. They only stated that they had a generalized need for self protection and that New York's refusal to issue them a permit violated their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Now, the Fourteenth Amendment does say people have a right to be secure in their persons, things, and effects. And if you're not secure from robbery, you're not secure. And obviously being able to defend yourself is part and parcel of being secure. That's not a big stretch. Well, the Supreme Court agreed with them, and they found that the proper cause requirement violates both the Second and the Fourteenth Amendment. A 6-3 opinion, this one was written by Justice Thomas, rejected the use of the prevailing framework for evaluating Second Amendment claims, saying instead that the government must affirmatively prove that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. The court said that the text of the Second Amendment protects the right to carry handguns in public for self-defense without a home-slash-public distinction. Besides a few outliers in the late 1800s, American lawmakers have not broadly prohibited public carry of a commonly used firearm for self-defense, nor have they required a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Hear, hear, Justice Thomas. This means that any state and locality where they have a good cause requirement, meaning show us why you need it, for issuing a handgun permit over and above someone expressing a generalized need for self-defense, those requirements are out they can no longer survive this ruling. Now, we all know the kind of legal gymnastics that that idiot in Albany, Governor Hokel, is now trying to undertake and pass this gun legislation, which they did pass by making everything a special space where we're not going to stop you from carrying it outside the home. You just can't carry it in every place outside the home. You can't carry it in church. You can't carry it in school. You can't. They try to make every place a special place so that basically you can't use it. And this is not without precedent in the state of New York. See, New York loves taxes. New York loves the tax revenue they get from cigarettes and other tobacco products, but particularly cigarettes. They really tax the shit out of cigarettes. But you'd think they hate the taxes they get on cigarettes, because despite having their hand open to readily collect it, the other liberal half of these idiots' brains has been geared towards making it illegal for you to smoke anywhere. You can't smoke within 50 feet of a building. You can't smoke in the workplace, can't smoke within 50 feet of the entrance of a building, you can't smoke with this person, you can't smoke in that place. And now, they have can't smoke in a public park, you can smoke weed. Outside, diesel fumes going left and right from the buses, but you can't smoke a cigarette in a public park. And lastly, but not least, they're trying to make it almost impossible for you to smoke in your own home if you happen to live in a multiple dwelling, like a co-op or a condominium or apartment building, they're going to say that you're responsible for the migration of your smoke. So let me ask you this. How legal is a legal product that you've sold if you can't use it anywhere? Where the hell do you come off taxing a product I buy that you say is permissible to sell? but it's impermissible for me to use it almost everywhere. Try to do the same thing with the guns. So this is not unprecedented for New York State. They're trying to take the Supreme Court uh, decision and trying to say, well, but every place is special, so therefore you can't really carry it. It's not going to survive, and we're going to get back to that in a little bit. The other thing they did was um, prayer. You know, prayer in the workplace was, ooh, verboten, can't have that. For years, we're trying to get that back in schools. Prayer in schools was eliminated. And now, a case brought by government employees uh, in a case called Kennedy versus the Bremerton School District, the Supreme Court spoke. The school district terminated coach Joe Kennedy because he had prayed after each game since 2008. While some players joined him at different times, he never required or encouraged them to do so. They terminated him, claiming that allowing any overt actions that might appear to a reasonable observer to endorse prayer while he was on duty as a district paid coach would violate the First Amendment's establishment clause. Kennedy sued the district, saying that it had violated his free exercise and free speech under the First Amendment instead. The court sided with Kennedy stating that both the free exercise and free speech clauses protect an individual engaging in personal religious observance from government reprisal. Further, the court went on to state that the Establishment Clause neither requires nor permits the government to suppress such religious expression. Well, how about that? According to the left, that would never be the case. The government does require it, it doesn't. Under the court's ruling, the school district violated the free exercise clause because its policy was neither neutral nor generally applicable to everyone, but instead targeted Kennedy's conduct because it was religious. It also violated the free speech clause because Kennedy's prayers were private rather than government speech. The court said that they were not pursuant to his official duties. The court found the school's establishment clause justification for firing Kennedy to be faulty because such a balancing test relies on Lemon versus Kurtzman, another case that, according to the majority opinion, the court long ago abandoned due to its practical and historical shortcomings, meaning it is a precedent setting decision which no longer operates as a precedent because the precedent set therein becomes impractical uh, in, in, in a real world. Application of it. So, this observation effectively overruled Lemon and its endorsement test for determining whether a government had violated the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Using school choice funds for religious education. Another case you may not have heard of Carson versus Macon. This was a challenge to Maine. The state of Maine had a prohibition against applying state funds from the state's tuition assistance program for use towards secondary schools that, in addition to teaching, you know, the required academic subjects, uh, also provided religious instruction. This practice was challenged by two separate families that claimed that Maine had violated the Free Exercise Establishment and Equal Protection Clause by restricting their freedom of school choice. Once again, Supreme Court sided with the little guy. They sided with the parents, the families holding that Maine's non-sectarian requirement for otherwise generally available tuition assistance payments violates the free exercise clause. A 6-3 decision. And who wrote this one, believe it or not? Chief Justice John Roberts, who must feel like he no longer wants to be in the minority because he knows that the Supreme Court can force these things 5-4, thanks to Donald Trump, once again, here, here, with three appointments in four years. So now, it seems that Justice Roberts is, so to speak, slowly finding his way back. You can rest assured, though, that if he were the deciding vote on the court and it was still 5-4, he'd be playing footloose and fancy free. But right now, he's been, he's been kept in line. But Justice Roberts wrote, to his credit, that Maine's requirement could not survive strict uh, scrutiny, the most stringent level of the review the court uses when determining whether a constitutional violation has occurred. The state's interest in avoiding the appearance of supporting a particular religion did not justify excluding members of the community from an otherwise generally available public benefit simply because of their religious exercise. The court also noted that the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the circuit that oversees Maine, uh, that Court of Appeals attempts to distinguish between religious status prohibitions meaning prohibiting funding solely based on an institution's status as a religious organization, and religious use prohibitions, supposedly prohibiting funding regardless of an institution's religious status, and instead prohibiting funding because it would be put to a religious use, such as teaching a religious course, was unpersuasive, and that the prohibition on status-based discrimination under free exercise clause didn't justify using uh, use-based discrimination. So it looks like the First Circuit was um, on board, and the Supreme Court just upheld the First Circuit. Obviously, the state of Maine appealed to the court. And this last one is pretty good for all those quite crazy environmentalists, the fifth one. This has to do with the EPA. The EPA's overreach regulating greenhouse gases. This was the case of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, earlier in the program, I had spoke... About, or should I say, I had spoken about how the elected representatives of this country, uh, in a great disservice to the American people, have over time abdicated their authority to govern the population and have subjected us to regulation by unelected bureaucrats at these um, agencies that they create who form regulations which operate. As law and can really, really destroy people's lives. Well, in a blow reining back in government authority, uh, the Supreme Court struck down at one of those agencies, one of the most overreaching and um, suppressive agencies we have, the Environmental Protection Agency, which can literally financially break organizations, individuals, and states with the power of fines that they are able to uh, levy against those entities. In this case, the West Virginia versus the EPA arose from a challenge to the cap-and-trade program that the EPA created in 2016. Uh, they launched this policy just after Congress failed to pass the American Clean Energy Security Act. This policy according to the article, aimed to amend the Clean Air Act by establishing a cap-and-trade program for greenhouse gas emissions that was functionally identical to the one that couldn't get through Congress. The EPA claimed it's, uh, it possessed the authority to issue the policy due to a provision already found in the Clean Air Act. So West Virginia and several other challenges enjoined and sued the EPA, alleging that the agency lacked the authority to issue such a rule. Well, it made its way up to the Supreme Court, and the court decided to find in favor of West Virginia, concluding that Congress did not grant the EPA the authority. The opinion again, 6-3, and written again by, you guessed it, Chief Justice John Roberts, the court held that the Clean Air Act does not authorize the EPA to force the fossil fuel energy sector of the economy to shift to so-called green or renewable sources of energy. Now, the Obama and Biden administrations uh, argued and had been arguing that the act's term system of pollution reduction actually authorized the EPA to shift from regulating pollution on a factory-by-factory basis, you know, through the use of, let's say, more efficient pollution reduction methodologies and technologies to demanding that the entire energy sector shift over, uh, over time, from fossil fuels to so-called green energy sources. The Supreme Court says no. They judged that the Obama and Biden administration's interpretation of the act is precisely the type of judgment that falls under the major questions doctrine. Now this is a doctrine of law. Under that doctrine, it is necessary for Congress to include a clear statement in the law for a court to conclude that it intended to delegate such authority of this breadth to regulate a fundamental sector of the economy. In other words, if Congress is going to abdicate their authority to do stuff and they're going to defer and confer this authority onto an agency. They better make it damn clear in the law that they create in empowering this agency to do these things, that that's what they intended. This can't be a sort of ambiguous thing that one liberal member can look at it and say, well, the bottle's half full. Another person looks at, well, it's half empty. It has to be something where it's unambiguous Uh, And that's what the major question doctrine is all about. So we have here these five major decisions, which are demonstrating quite clearly that the only thing that's saving the United States from going down an irreversible path to socialism and communism is the Supreme Court acting as a bulwark and not acting in an incredibly irresponsible way not acting in a crazy way, doing what they're supposed to do, deciding whether legislation is constitutional or not. And in deciding that it's constitutional, they've pissed a few, or certain things were unconstitutional, that they've pissed a few people off. Well, too bad. It's the third branch of government. It has the power of judicial review. Uh, it's designed to keep the other branches in check, And that's exactly what it's doing. That's exactly what it's doing. And there's been some craziness as a result of this. Uh, Now, Clarence Thomas did not write the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Justice Alito did. But there was a movement to try and impeach Justice Thomas and remove him from the court. Now, Dick Durbin, a person who I'm no fan of, who's the uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that oversees nominations to the federal bench, the Supreme Court included. He was on Fox News Sunday, supposedly on July 10th. Now, I'm reading from an article that covered that um, appearance because I no longer watch Fox News since their betrayal of conservative values. He was there this past Sunday, uh, and he brushed off efforts by apparently some people on the left to impeach Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, Apparently, MoveOn.org started a petition, and they collected one million signatures in the past three months. As to whether he's going to be impeached, that is not realistic, but he should show good judgment, Durbin said about Thomas. If this court is going to be credible... It has to be as apolitical as possible. Exactly the opposite has been happening. So basically, in Durbin's opinion, whenever the court decides in a way that he doesn't agree with, then they're acting politically. Whenever they're deciding in a way that he agrees with, then they're acting apolitically. So you see, this is a very subjective standard that the left likes to employ. And the left itself is unbalanced. I was just listening to an interview with Ari Fleischer, who was the former press secretary for George W. Bush in the early days of his administration, and he just finished a new book about the press. Now, the title escapes me at the moment, but he's talking about how the conduct of the press has devolved and how it's become very, very confrontational. Uh, It's become very, very uh, ideological, and it's no longer impartial. If it ever was, it no longer is. And he said there was a study done And it said the only people that identify with the media, it says the media speaks for them, and the only people that say they understand what the media is saying, back and forth, this mutual admiration society, are college-educated Democrats. And that's primarily what the mainstream media is comprised of. High school-educated Democrats don't say that the media speaks for them. High school or college-educated independents say the media doesn't speak to them. High school or educated Republicans say the media doesn't speak to them or for them. So the media is out of touch with the majority of the United States of America, and they're speaking only to each other, and they're living in a bubble. And this is how you have that woman that made that, statement when Richard Nixon uh, defeated George McGovern in that landslide. uh, She's like, I don't know who, he goes, I don't know how he won. I don't know anyone who voted for him. That's right. You don't know anyone who voted for him because you live in a bubble with very few people and you believe everyone believes as you do, but you're wrong. So Justice Thomas is not going anywhere. But apparently what started this off Why he was singled out for special attention is that there were left-wing activists that have taken issue with certain texts that apparently were exchanged between Justice Thomas's wife and the former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff when Donald Trump left office, as well as a, a dissenting opinion written by Thomas. He was the sole lone dissenter stating that President Donald Trump could not block the House January 6th panel from accessing documents related to the Capitol uh, breach. Everybody said that he could not. Thomas said he could. Um, But again, Durbin still stuck to his guns as far as saying there's no way we're going to impeach Justice Thomas, but he's now calling on Thomas to recuse himself from all matters related to January 6th. Let me tell you a little story, just to add weight to this. The left is great, great for asking people on the right to recuse themselves anytime they make any kind of statement. They did the same thing with Trump's first attorney general, the former senator, said that he had to uh, recuse himself because he made a statement about Russia. Back in 1987, 1988, a significant piece of legislation called the Comprehensive Crime Control Act was passed under the Reagan administration. That legislation effectively ended federal parole. Now you have supervised release. People can't get out early. Everyone has to do 85% of their sentence. And unfortunately, the way they calculate it, it actually works out to something like 87.5% of your time. When you go to federal crime, federal prison, basically it works out that for every seven and a half years you're sentenced, you get one year off of good time. If you don't forfeit any of it for bad behavior, that's not much, but people take what they can get. In addition to abolishing parole, one of the biggest things it did was establish sentencing guidelines because apparently most federal statutes have a minimum of zero And a maximum of twenty years. You can get zero to twenty at the whim of a judge. And there was great disparity in different parts of the country for the same crime. People sentenced for drugs in New York, where it's a very permissive society, you know, the judges live here, they're part of the lexicon of the culture, the relevant cultural ethos, if you will, didn't look at it as being very serious and didn't give out that much in the way of time for drug offenses. People in Wyoming got the maximum. So the sentencing guidelines were supposedly a good idea in the beginning as a way of getting all of these circuits and districts in line so they'd have sort of comparable sentencing regardless of where in the country you ran afoul of the law, okay? We saw the same thing in, in New York State, Years ago, you know, people sentenced for armed robbery in the city getting a light sentence, people upstate New York, where they, you know, tolerate that nonsense, getting long sentences, causing a lot of dissension in the prison system among the inmate population. Okay, been there, done that. But these are the things uh, that were at issue. And so, Justice Breyer, the recently retired justice, he was a lawyer on the Sentencing Commission. He played a major role in drafting those sentencing guidelines. And over the years, those sentencing guidelines, like the bureaucracies I mentioned earlier, began to take on a life of their own. They began to operate as super statutes, superseding the duly passed statutes of Congress in some cases. And far from limiting people's exposure to time, in some cases was actually adding to their exposure of time. So a big case came down in Washington state. Fanfan fan versus Booker. Challenging the sentencing guidelines of Washington state, which were very similar to the federal guidelines. And they and Justice Scalia again wrote the decision, saying that they can't fly. Because under the sentencing guidelines, you could be convicted for a particular crime by beyond a reasonable doubt, by a jury. And then when it came to sentencing, a federal judge would decide what crime your conduct most closely mirrors and actually sentence you for something far in excess of what the jury found you guilty for, based on his or her sole opinion by a preponderance of the evidence, which is 50.1%. Judge Tom, uh, judge uh, Scalia, in very stern language, said, Any finding of fact which increases a criminal defendant's exposure to time must be found by a jury, by a standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, not by a lone jurist, by a preponderance of the evidence. It killed the sentencing guidelines. So shortly thereafter, now, Justice Breyer never recused himself, and he certainly should have recused himself. But even if you want to say he didn't have to recuse himself from that case because it was a state case, subsequent, they heard another case that was going to attack the federal guidelines themselves. And so you know what they did in a cowardly fashion? Well, if we make it advisory, if the guidelines are only advisory and they're not mandatory, well then, the Fan Fan Booker reasoning doesn't apply. And that's what they did. And then he went on to say, but you have to have a real good reason for not following the advice. So that's kind of like the same thing. Talk about hypocrisy. Nobody questioned the man who wrote the bloody guidelines to recuse himself when they were deciding on whether they should overrule it. He certainly had a reason to recuse himself. But now this idiot Durbin wants Thomas recusing himself. So what you have here is a perfect example in constitutional uh, theory, debate, history, mechanism as to just how brilliant the founding fathers were when they formed this three-branch system of government, the chief executive, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Because when the other two branches are running amok, we have a third branch to rein them in and allow reason and common sense to prevail unless you think that I'm jesting and that I'm making mountains out of molehills that the left is not out of their minds that they're not obsessed with certain things let me give you a little comparison what have you seen in the news lately january 6th all talking about january 6th the riots the january 6th riots the insurrection The attempt to take over our government is the end of democracy. First of all, you can't end what you never had. This is a representative democracy. It's not a democracy per se. It's a republic. We elect representatives and we entrust our decisions with them to execute. They vote for us. That's the first thing. Secondly, I've never seen an insurrection or a revolution or anything like that. Any kind of takeover where no one is armed. No one had any guns. The only person killed was a protester who was killed for nothing. She was murdered by a guard, Ashley Babbitt. Murdered by that piece of crap. Who was a coward. I've discussed this so many times. Not one crime which qualifies for the use of deadly physical force was it in the progress of being committed or had been committed by Ashley Babbitt that justified this idiot firing into a crowd of police officers who were standing behind her on that day. Now, let me put it in perspective for you. First of all, we now know that there were professional agitators there from not only left wing groups, but from the government and the FBI telling people to go into that building. They did this deliberately to try and pin it on Donald Trump, and he didn't do a goddamn thing except tell people they have the right to protest. Everybody knows the election was stolen. I told this to you, I explained it to you. It was explained in that movie. I even gave you a clear case of how in Maricopa County, Arizona, 20,500 ballots came in after election day. When the state said anything that comes in after 7 p.m. election day cannot be counted. Only 924 of those ballots were not counted. Only 924 were disqualified. And we're not supposed to question the results of an election in a state where the margin of victory was 10,500, but 19,500 illegal ballots were counted? Give me a break. But let's just stick with this comparison. January 6th, this thing that the left wants you to believe is the worst thing that's ever befallen us in recent memory. It lasted a few hours. Zero people were murdered by the participants. There were murders on the part of the Capitol Police. No small businesses were destroyed. Only one federal building was damaged. The damage it's approximately a million and a half dollars. 140 officers were assaulted during the process of keeping the peace. The protesters that were arrested have been kept in solitary confinement. This is unprecedented. Since that day. They were encouraged, the protesters were, by fringe political groups and agitators. And all of this was exaggerated by the media a hundredfold, resulting in national violence outrage. Now let's move the clock back a year or so. For all of the Black Lives Matter riots and other left-wing groups, they didn't take place on one day. There were more than 500 of these riots. These 500 riots lasted seven months. They were responsible collectively for over 20 murders committed by participants of these riots. Hundreds of small businesses were destroyed. More than 150 federal buildings were damaged to the tune of $2 billion. 2,037 officers were assaulted. The protesters were all bailed out. They were encouraged by the media and politicians. The severity of the riots and the fallout from them were downplayed by the media, resulting in national encouragement, not outrage. I found this great little spreadsheet on the news that laid it out this way with these facts, these bullet points. It's kind of hard to argue with it, isn't it? On one hand, you've got something that was essentially nothing, that was blown up, disproportionately covered to make look like it was something. On the other hand, you had a lot of everything that was suppressed, justified, explained. Government buildings were taken over. They let people protest. They said, oh, well, they can take over the police station. They can run the government. They can declare it a free zone. It's just democracy in action. No, it's revolution in action. Everything that the left accuses the right of, they themselves are doing. They accuse Donald Trump of corruption. Hunter Biden is corrupt. Joe Biden is corrupt. He's a thief. I know he's, he's incompetent and he's a, he's a uh, dementia-ridden old fool now. But when he's had his wits about him, he was a thief. And I'm sure that at certain moments when he's lucid, he's still a thief. He's a thief that was given the keys to the biggest corporation in the world. And he's not running it. Obama is, has to be Obama, because he can't be the man who wears diapers and trips over himself. He can't even read a cue card. But just remember, the only thing saving you, ladies and gentlemen, is the Supreme Court. So I hope you listen to this show. I hope you tell your friends about it, particularly this episode, and explain just how the Supreme Court has saved the day and preserved freedom and the integrity of the American way of life for all of us, in spite of the uber-left wave that has been running this country since the 2020 election. Hopefully they will not be running it after the 2022 election, but they've been running it until now. And the only reason why the Supreme Court has been able to do this is because it was staffed and populated by people of a conservative, strict, Constitutional constructionist mindset. And for the appointment of those people, we can thank Donald Trump, 45th president of this union. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.